Welcome to Revenue Rehab, your one-stop destination for collective solutions to the biggest challenges faced by marketing leaders today. Now head on over to the couch, make yourself comfortable, and get ready to change the way you approach revenue. Leading your recovery is modern marketer, author, speaker, and chief operating officer at Tegrita, Brandy Starr. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Revenue Rehab. I am your host, Brandy Starr, and we have another amazing episode for you today. I am joined by Elza Maluk. Elza is an award-winning CMO who drives businesses into the future. With a data-driven and strategic mindset, she has led global marketing teams, spearheaded brand transformations, and achieved remarkable results. Her expertise lies in developing innovative strategies, leveraging data science, and captivating audiences through compelling storytelling. She founded BMG, a psychology-based marketing firm that helps brands change hearts and minds through our proprietary approach, The Butterfly Effect. Welcome to Revenue Rehab, Elsa. Your session begins now. Thank you so much for having me, Brandy. I'm really excited to be here. I am excited to talk to you. I know that this is one episode where I'm definitely going to learn some new things, which I absolutely love. Um, but before we jump into that, I like to break the ice with a little woo moment that I call buzzword banishment. So tell me, what industry buzzword would you like to get rid of forever? You know, I... I come from the data science side, so this is going to sound a little bit um, more of an oxymoron, but one word that I do want to banish in the way that it's used is attribution modeling. Uh, yeah, that one is one that most people don't like. Attribution just, just tends to not have a great reputation. So why is it that you don't like it? So I think that um, a lot of organizations, the way that attribution modeling is used is in a one-to-one -one relationship, meaning one attribution to one sale. And most data is supposed to be directional, you know, given the fact of data privacy and everything that we can use it with, that it's, it's used as a make or break versus a directional aspect, which is the intended use mm -hmm. for, for a lot of marketing intelligence programs, including attribution modeling. <laughs> I, I, I like that. Yeah. And that is the common challenge is that it is, you know, it assumes that a B2B buyer does this one thing and then magically, you know, buys this really expensive other thing. And that's not usually how it works. Um, so now that we've gotten that off our chest, tell me what brings you to Revenue Rehab today? I am really excited to be here. Uh, as I as I mentioned, I'm excited to talk more about the heart side of marketing and the emotions that we bring to our audience and what strategies we should use to reach the heart of our audience. Awesome. Um, and so before we jump in there, I believe in setting intentions. It gives us focus, it gives us purpose, and most important, it gives our audience an understanding of what they should expect from our discussion today. So what is your best hope for our talk? What would you like people to take away from listening to this episode? 
I would love for people to take a step back and look at their marketing strategies, whether you're a coordinator all the way up to a CMO or even a CEO that is evaluating how marketing is performing and just say, have we, are we looking at this from the right lens? Are we looking at it from the heart of the audience or are we looking at it from the heart of ourselves? Okay. So I want to jump in directly to that heart piece. Um, you know, we always hear like, you know, very common conversation that marketing needs to appeal to the emotion and, you know, really speak to like, what's the real pain point or the need, you know, not about the features and benefits. Like that's real common conversation at, at all levels of marketing. Um, but when you talk about the heart, I sense that that's a little deeper than just we need to appeal to the emotion. So I'd like to really start by giving us your perspective and like, what does that really mean to speak to the heart of the consumer? So our organization has pretty extensive research, both from second party and, and our first party data around humans behave emotionally and they use what they deem as rational or, or data-oriented sources to confirmation bias themselves into their own perceived notions. And you can do one of two things. You can either cry about it and, and say, well, that's just the way things are. Or you can kind of go meet them where they are, connect with them on, a, on an emotional basis, and then use your data to confirmation bias themselves into your direction. And, and there's a way, there's, there's a, a, an art to it just as much as there is a science to make that happen. But it does require a lot of internal work within a marketing department to say, are we, are we meeting people where they're at or are we telling them to follow us along? Hmm. Very interesting. So talk a bit more about this because for me, what I really want to understand is the differentiation between what you're talking about at this, you know, deeper level and the kinds of conversations that, you know, most of us who have been in marketing for a while have had around, you know, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What do they need to know? Um, and I know that you've got lots of reset research and you've got your approach that you leverage for this. So go a little deeper for me and helping me to understand that, you know, what does this really mean for a marketing team? How does this look differently? I think it starts um, at the top. So when you're building a marketing strategy, going deeper into the pain points of what does someone experience on a day in, day out with this pain point? makes a world of a difference. Um, in some instances, when, when when our organization does CIPs, we actually do character profiles instead of personas, uh, mm -hmm. almost as if you're writing a book about that person. Because you, know, you only understand someone if you walk a mile in their shoes, and this is our mode of it. And by, by sitting there and saying, oh, okay, this is also the impact, and this is the personal and the business impacts that are occurring, from those pain points, you get a much deeper understanding that everything from the way you talk and the way you write about it, all the way down to how your creatives put pieces together, totally shifts. It's a very 
uh, it becomes very introspective versus extrospective in many ways, because now your, 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 your mindset has changed on how you should talk to them because you understand their world. Okay. And I, you know, I, you hit on one thing that I do think is often overlooked that I think is important is those, the personal impact. Um, you know, a lot of times, especially in B2B, we are thinking about our customer as being the business. Um, and this is why, you know, you have people talk about B to H, that it's business to human or B to E, business to everyone. You know, that, that's why these concepts come into play is that we are a bunch of individuals who collectively have our own motivations. And some of those motivations are personal in how does this impact my career? How does this impact my day to day? You know, how does this, you know, how does this change how I'm perceived at work? And those are things that I think are much harder to really put our fingers on. We can make some assumptions, you know, there's no like database, like, you know, a lot of people lean on personas because you can get some of the basics of the demographic and firmographic information. But this level of understanding of what people are thinking and feeling and how they're impacted is something that's not easy to come by. And so how do you, you know, what do you recommend to companies that are like, yeah, it would be great if we could really think about it this way, but how do I get there? Yeah, so it, it starts with doing some market research into your core audience. And, and in most organizations, you're going to have one, more than one persona. So, you know, prioritizing which personas do you do you feel would be best beneficial for this type of character profile? And, and then going down into whether it be focus groups or surveys or what, whatever access, whatever mode of research you're going to do, there is kind of a series of questions and the questions are less important than the way that they're answered. Um, because the way that they're answered gives you ideas of what biases does this audience particularly have? Um, you know, if you're a tech company and you're selling to maybe a CMO or, or a CTO, there are inherent biases that almost every um, every CTO has. They have a every, they have a preference on what language they like to use. They have a preference on all of these aspects. So by le understanding that world, you you become a part of their community and and say, oh, okay, now you understand the level of the why I have this bias or why I go through it. In some instances, we've even been able to go down as far as to say. Well, because we know the demographic is this is this point, we know that 10, 20 years ago, they were facing this, which is a direct byproduct of their current pay points. So we were yeah. even able to lean into some fam familiarity of their past lives that we were able to subliminally message moving forward to say, oh, I'm going to use that joke or that 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 play because I know that they can relate to it because our our demographic just happened to be really tight in one in some of our projects. So it I think once you it, again I kind of equivalent it back to a book. If you can if you can write a character profile that you can say, okay, here's this person's arc um, for their story, you get much more personal and you understand, oh, this is why Jane Doe is doing this. And this is why um, uh, John, 
John Smith is doing why. Uh, you start to understand the whys of their actions, which helps you way farther in everything from strategy development all the way down to content creation, because you you know the lens you're looking from. It's um, Sometimes our team calls it a little bit like fan fiction, like we wrote the book, now we're writing the fiction after, after <laughs> that from it, um, because it does have that element of continuing storylines that because we know those characters so well. Okay. And so I know just from um, some of the previous information that you had shared with me that there is a direct impact to doing this well with coupled with your brand authenticity and, you know, how you want to show up in the marketplace. And so I'd like to kind of connect the two in terms of like, how does this change your organization? How does this help you live your brand or how does it change? You know, what does it change? Yeah. So we put character profiling, brand authenticity, and, and um, neuroscience and psychology research kind of in a triangle. And the three are all, um, it's a symbiotic relationship between the three. So doing almost the same work to your brand identity will actually get you a deeper sense of who you really are. So similar format, but you just do it introspectively versus identifying others gets you an idea of, okay, this is who our organization truly is, not who necessarily we want to be, but this is who we are today. And having that level of authenticity to say, here's a little bit of our character flaws. Here's the things that we're good at. Here's the emotions we convey, whether we want to or not that level of authenticity and that level of transparency tends to go way further when you couple it. And then even more when you couple it with that character profiling to say, here's who we are. Good, bad, and different. Here's who we are. Um, and here's who our audience is. And here's how we want to talk to them. It resonates significantly further because buyers are, you know, historically, have way more access to data than they've ever had before, um, have show a much more higher level of intelligence when it comes to research. We know that 87% of them have basically picked out their top companies that they want to partner with, with a, with a particular initiative before they even contact the organization. So I always look at it from a perspective of if everything speaks and we know how they want to be spoken to, they being the target audience. And we know the psychological research. And then we also know how you speak. Now you've got a really interesting effect on the three to say, you know how people behave. You know what these people want to talk, uh, how they want to be communicated to. And then you know who you are. Um, it, it becomes much more clear when you start everything from, from strategy to, to conversion um, because you you have a more predictable model to say, I can empathize with that behavior. Okay. And so I want to dig a little bit more because I'm really intrigued about what you're saying in terms of bringing forth the brand's personality, the good, bad, and indifferent. Um, and I love that you phrased it that way because I know in general – if you look at most marketing material, whether it's websites, collateral, emails, whatever, it focuses on the good. You okay. know, that is what everybody wants to bring forth. Here is why we're great. And the bad 
you know, most people want to tuck away and the indifferent is kind of there and we just don't highlight it. And I do believe, you know, I, I like to use a lot of dating analogies and, and I think about, you know, choosing a company, like looking at, you know, dating profiles and figuring out which way you're going to swipe. It's like something has to come through in terms of who is that person? And in this case, who is that brand? And that transparency, like I think about, you know, the transparency that comes across in someone's dating profile is actually attractive because you recognize they're not putting forth a front. It feels like that's a whole lot harder to do and to get people comfortable with. Cause you know, even thinking about how I could write that way, like, yeah, it's not that difficult to, you know, write with transparency, but being able to like get that approved through the various, you know, cycles of, well, we don't want to say that because we're not stellar here, or we don't want to say that because it, you know, paints us in this light. When you're working with your clients, how do you advise them or what sort of ways are you seeing that people are able to put that level of transparency about who they are as an organization out in the marketplace without, you know, that fear of we got to appear perfect? I think that, um, in, in our instance with our clients, the way that we've used it is finding a balance between being transparent and, 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 but still showing that we're, they're a very capable organization. And in, in almost all instances where our clients have potentially refused to go down that route versus the ones that have, the ones that have are doing you know, somewhere between 15 and 20% better than the ones that don't. Because there is something to be said about being open to say, if this is your problem, we don't actually do that well. So it's better for us to tell you now than for us to lose you six months down the line because we didn't solve your problem. Specifically for B2B, because I think B2C has a different slightly different emotional basis and, yeah. and longevity feel. But for the B2B, if you're going to be in a long sales cycle, um, which is a lot of our clients, you really want to make sure you don't lose them within you know a year or so because it took you a year to gain them. And mm -hmm. and now not only because the other part is we have this we have this um you know post close um or customer lost effect where the moment you lose a customer, they're probably going to tell 10 other people yeah. why they lost them. So now you've also lost the opportunity to connect with any of theirs because you've broken their trust by just not being honest in the front, in the forefront. And there is a time or place um, on, on what levels of transparency at what medium. So you do have to play that dance a little bit. Um, and what we found is the further down the process you go, the more transparent you have to become because oh, really? they, they are also being transparent with you. You're building a, um, an emotional capital with them and you trade vulnerabilities. And that's a really good way to build emotional capital is they tell you what they're vulnerable with. They tell you their pain points. They tell you what they um, are, are looking for. So it's only beneficial for you to say, this is what we do well. These are the things we don't do so well. And, and if any of those are your deal breakers, then we know now um, versus, you know, spending time and then realizing you're 
your close rate is not as great as you'd like it to be because you you weren't as transparent. So it's really all about building that emotional capital as you go down the sales funnel as well. Okay. Yeah. And it, it what I'm hearing is that this approach is really important at both the marketing and, you know, or within the marketing and sales functions in that we've got to be able to put everything that we're putting out there, have the right level of vulnerability and transparency in it based on where they are. But given that we've got to have more of this further in the process, it's like you've really got to get sales on board, which is counterintuitive to your stereotypical sales motions where, you know, like if I think about sales folks in like the 90s and early 2000s, it very much was a, a tap dance of like, let me just tell you why we're great. You would never, especially in tech, you know, have a vendor be like, oh, we're not great in this area. Like it was very much close everything, you know, that you can. So it, it's like that, that um, approach has to really be woven into the organization. And I think that that ties back to what you were saying in who are you? as opposed to who do you aspire to be? Because it's like, if this is who you are, then everybody needs to be able to effectively communicate that. Exactly. And it's, there is a balance between, you know, what your vision is, right? Say, we want to be this company at some point, but you still have to say, this is where we are, right? You know, you can't, for lack of a better word, you can't turn, uh, you know, a, a, a little Chevy Aveo, which is what I used to have when I was in college, to you know a luxury car. Um, that that that's not the type type of transformation that's feasible in a very short period of time. However, you can say, okay, this is where we are today. Here's our ten year aspiration, but here's where we're, here's the next step for us. And um, there's a lot of interesting product led um, growth initiatives that can help you with that, where you can steal some of those scenarios in your messaging, um, even if you're not using a product-led approach uh, in its entirety as well. Yeah. And, you know, even just thinking about, you know, our business and like there as consultants, we, you know, we are not the end all to be all like we have our places where we shine. We have those places where it's like, yeah, we can do that. That's not our core expertise. And then those like, yeah, we don't touch that. And, I can even think of times where I have told a prospect, like, that's not where we are amazing. Like, we're amazing here. We can help you there. We can, you know, collaborate with another vendor to help you there. And they've, you know, I'm thinking of a particular scenario. They didn't sign with us because they did need, they wanted a single agency to cover, you know, more swim lanes than we could. But I later got a referral from that person who had referred someone else. And, you know, I didn't think about it then because, you know, hadn't really had this thought process. But now that I'm thinking about it, that transparency of being able to say, here's why, we're, you know, here's where we're amazing and probably not for you, you know, because you need one of the deal breaker kind of things using uh, your wording from earlier. I am making an assumption that that is probably what led them to refer someone because they had never worked with us, had, you know, no 
real true experience other than the sales process. So that that's really interesting. And definitely I see a potential outcome there. Yeah. Um, so where your clients are really successful, I know you said the ones that really adopt this approach are doing, you know, 25% better. What does that really look like? Like, I always like to focus on, you know, because any sort of transformation within an organization comes with effort. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, why do we embark on this effort? And so what are some of the business outcomes that when you really, you know, build that authentic brand, put the emotion, um, you know, really understand the customer and their character, um, what does that do for a business? So, um there is there's a there's a balance between having intrinsic value built on as well as revenue value built on and we try to balance the two to say these are long-term projects where the revenue won't come until probably year three to five and here here's the you know 18 months to three years and then here's the short term so we do try to balance the two um i would say for our for our startup, more younger clients, it's the difference between, you know, doubling revenue year over year versus the 15 to 20% that they were having previously. Um, if you're a larger organization, that's a much bigger ship to turn. So there's a longer, you know, tenure that we have to kind of manage. Um, in some instances where we've taken over maybe entire channels um, for them, we've seen that really spike quite drastically because of the way that we've we've come upon it. Um, if we're doing more top level or research, um, I had one client who came to us and we had we we decided to do all their creative moving forward because that was one area that they really struggled with um, in, in creating emotionally captivating and triggering pieces. And it took us about three months to actually start a creative piece because we had to go all the way back. And then we had to meet to a point where we we felt comfortable generating content for them. And um, with that, we ended up doing several proposals um, on their behalf for, for this long-term uh, RFP that they're going into. And they have probably a 40% higher close rate than they've had before because of that, just, just the creative aspect. Nothing else has changed in their organization. In fact, they have less opportunities than they've had before because of you know, concerns about the economy and so on, but they've been closing way faster and uh, on a much better rate just from the visual perspective. So there, we try to kind of say, where are the areas we can make impact? Because similar to you, there are things that we don't do. Like we're, we're not, we operate on hearts and minds. So technical pieces outside of data science are not really our skill set. Um, so we'll say, here's, here's, context that you can go to that we've we've worked with in the past. Um, but so when we try to carve our pie, we say this is the area that we think is going to make an impact because it doesn't really make sense for us to take a, a piece of a slice if we know that we've compartmentalized this pie so much that we're not going to make a dent. Right. Um, and so the last thing I want to ask about, I know you have this butterfly effect approach and I've been dying to know what is that? So can you kind of give me the summary of what that approach is and, and why you developed it? So um, we've kind of talked about pieces of it. Um, and the way that the butterfly effect works is really those strategic movements 
that marketing and, and really any area of an organization um, moves and how they impact behavior. Um, it's a lot around, if you think about the ripple effect, I, I, I drop a stone in the middle of the water and you see the ripples kind of go through. It's that mindset of, of doing things way earlier and building that emotional capital slowly. A really good scenario is the one that you mentioned where you told a, you told a prospect that this is not what you do. And then later on, you, you've got a referral out of it. Um, it's that emotional build, build that we work through. And our psychology research shows us that this journey is much far, it's way deeper than the funnel. There's a, there's a subliminal side that is inherently built. And that's actually what shapes biases and perceptions. So we work on that level as well. And then start from that point all the way down versus necessarily what's, what's traditionally used as the awareness stage. If you've gotten to the awareness stage, someone's already formed an opinion about you. Right. So we want to get to a point where we determine the opinion before the opinion is formed. Okay. I was going to say, so, so interesting. I, I love it. I think probably my favorite part of hosting Revenue Rehab is just the amount that I learn from my guests. Um, so this has been really, really awesome. And talking about our challenges is just the first step and nothing changes if nothing changes. And so in traditional therapy, the therapist gives the client some homework. But here at Revenue Rehab, we like to flip that on its head and ask you to give us some homework. So for those that are listening um, and, you know, they're really what you're saying is really resonating with them in the need to tap more into the emotion of both their company and their target audience. What's the first step? What's your one thing? Where do you recommend people start? So I think it starts um, from from the internal team. Like if you're investigating this, do a sample within your existing team of how they they personally perceive it's going. Because I think that a lot of marketers inherently know there it is, but there may not be tangible data to prove it because they're not measuring at that point. That's a really good stage. Um, in a lot of our clients, we've seen that where their, their team feels validated with some of the information we've brought through because they may feel it and they see it anecdotally, but they just don't have the, the, the business case to bring something forward. Um, I think that's a great first step to say is how are we, how are we, how do we think we're doing excluding the numbers? What are, what is our perception of how our, how our clients are behaving and are we reaching the line, the, the line? And it's obviously done in a personal enclosed environment um, and creating that space for authenticity within your team. Um, and then go from there, like understand where, where things are. If, if uh, depending on what the feedback is, because sometimes the feedback is we're doing great, but you have to continue to ask. Right. Um, because you may not have an ecosystem of, of people saying we should change X, Y, and Z, or I think we're doing this wrong. Um, so it's that continuous aspect and, I've had some clients that may not have gotten an answer until three months of asking every every <laughs> few weeks because there's just that hesitation of not rocking the boat. And then I've had some where they've been very vocal on day one. So you just don't know what bag, what mixed bag you have. Okay. I, I love that as a good starting point because that's that's an easy 
um, next step or first step to just start to talk to your team um, because there are probably are things that they are seeing that they're like, oh, we could totally do better here. Or, you know, I feel like I've even seen some things with like some of the brand guidelines and standards. It's like, ah, oh, we do this because this is what, you know, we're told we have to, but really, you know, we feel like this would be, you know, a better voice or, or whatever. So I do think that that's a great starting point. So now everybody's got their one thing and that's to talk to your team um, and to start to get that insight. Um, well, I have enjoyed our com conversation, Elza, so much, but that's our time for today. Uh, but before we go, how can our audience stay connected with you? Um, so easiest way to connect with me personally is LinkedIn. Um, uh, my URL is just my first and last name, Elza Malik. Um, uh, if you want to connect more or just read more insights on the butterfly effect or any of our research, that's available at bluemonarchgroup.com um, under the Butterfly Chronicles where we have insight and tips and so on. Um, and yeah, I think that's a good way. But thank you so much. This has been a lovely conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, we will make sure to uh, link to your LinkedIn um, as well as uh, BMG. So wherever you are listening or watching this podcast, check the show notes and you'll be able to connect with Elza. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. Uh, you've given me some things to think about. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come to the couch today. Um, so I hope everyone has enjoyed my discussion. Um, can't believe we're already at the end. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, Brandy. Take care. You've been listening to Revenue Rehab with your host, Brandy Starr. Your session is now over, but the learning has just begun. Join our mailing list and catch up on all our shows at revenuerehab.live. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at Revenue Rehab. This concludes this week's session. We'll see you next week.